Welcome to episode 46 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store. You can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with somebody who you think might want to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. As we were reaching out to guests for this podcast series, a number of colleagues mentioned today's guest as someone who has been working in suicide prevention for decades and has deep and strong knowledge about suicide in the veteran population. Shauna? Yes. So Dr. Harold Cudler received his MD from Downstate Medical Center, trained in psychiatry at Yale, and is adjunct associate professor at Duke. Dr. Cudler has had a long and storied career with many years of service in the VA. He co-led the development of joint VA Department of Defense guidelines for the management of post-traumatic stress and rounded out his career as the Assistant Deputy Undersecretary for Patient Care Services until his retirement from VA in June 2018. Dr. Cudler remains on the Duke faculty and plays an active role in a number of professional organizations. The grandson of a doctor in the Army Medical Corps, Dr. Cudler has felt a special tie ever since his first psychiatry rotation was on a VA inpatient ward. His personal connection to the work with veterans is an intergenerational one and continues to mean a great deal to him personally. Yes, I think that Dr. Cudler definitely brings a needed perspective to this conversation. So we'll get into my discussion with him and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. So you've been working on the issue of veteran mental health broadly, and especially suicide in the veteran population, the military mental health population for a number of years. I'm wondering from your perspective, what have you seen that has maybe stayed the same or has changed over time? The veterans have stayed the same over time. And I think that was surprise number one for a lot of my colleagues and something I learned in the clinics. In fact, when I started As a psychiatry resident in the summer of 1980 at the West Haven VA, the fact is that PTSD hadn't yet been named. The DSM-3 came out later that summer. So we're on the wards with a lot of veterans of different eras. There were World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, uh, a lot of veterans from the periods in between, and there were a lot of young Vietnam veterans. So some had only been home for five years and uh, others had been home uh, a, a good deal longer. And these were people who were drinking too much. Some of them heard things. They might have been voices or sounds or screaming. They were having uh, nightmares. They were depressed. And we didn't have this frame of PTSD in which to understand them. So the ones that drank were drunks. And uh, the people who heard voices probably were schizophrenic. And the depressors were depressed. And it was all so easy to fit them into those frames that we had available. But I was very lucky. One of my first psychotherapy supervisors was a fellow named Art Blank. And Art had served as a psychiatrist in Vietnam. And he had a kind of secret curriculum that he ran. But I came to realize he was helping me put a frame on some of these people that I 
could really use to make sense of them. And But then I didn't come back to the VA for another few years. And during that time, everybody started really talking about PTSD. All through my career, I've run into different frames that people were putting on veterans. And I kept finding out those frames didn't fit. There were better ways to do it. And I guess eventually I began to realize that I had my own frames and they were limiting my vision. And so I've enjoyed deconstructing my vision of PTSD over and over since the 1980s. And it turns out there was plenty of room to do that. And I probably still have more work to do on myself, let alone on PTSD. And, and that's something that, and I'd, I'd actually had a previous guest in Carl Marlantis, uh, who, who is an author and a Vietnam veteran. And, and Carl's like, there's a lot of similarities, but mud still smells like mud and blood still smells like blood, right? There's a lot more things in what you were talking about regarding the Vietnam veterans. They drink too much. Maybe they hear some things. Maybe they have nightmares. Maybe they have depression. Uh, that can easily be said about somebody coming back from World War II or somebody coming back from Iraq and the global war on terror. Those are things that I see as a mental health provider in my clientele today, uh, which do span from Vietnam veterans all the way to somebody got out last year. And so there are those similarities, that which is similar unites us. And, and then really looking at the suicide impact of the mental health and PTSD and the broad PTSD but suicide over the years and, and how you have come to understand suicide is maybe a lagging indicator of some of these underlying problems, but it's a persistent problem in the military-related community. That's right. Although the fact is, and now we have good historical evidence, the suicide rates have been very different in different wars. And although it has peaked during these recent wars in the recent time frame. In fact, it's much lower than it had been up until World War II. And a lot of the stories we were told anecdotally about suicide rates turned out not, I think, to be true. So we're still trying to get a handle on suicide, how it happens and how to understand it. And the thing about suicide, we had started screening for suicide in the VA long before any other major hospital system was doing it, long before anybody even thought about doing it. And, and yet what we were finding with these massive numbers is that nine out of 10 people who died by suicide were still not being identified, even though we were asking every veteran every year about depression, about PTSD, the things you thought were going to tell you who was at, at risk, they weren't strong enough. So we still weren't <laughs> drilling down to who's going to be able to, and, and the reason is that suicide is like finding hen's teeth. It, 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 if 6,000 veterans die the year by suicide, but there were 22.5 million veterans at the time I was there, that's less than a needle in a haystack. So one of the first things I had to confront when I got to central office was the president, both Obama and Trump, were telling the secretaries of Veterans Affairs at, at their respective times, my number one issue is veteran suicide. You got to fix this. And I had two problems. 14 out of 20 weren't even in our system, so how am I going to fix it? You, you couldn't make VA big enough or smart enough or nice enough to fix that problem if 14 out of 20 weren't there. And, and the data was two years old when it was fresh in our hands. So I could create a brilliant new system for detecting and preventing suicide and it would take me two years to know if it was even beginning to move the needle. So that wasn't going to work. 
And where this led me and my team, we're trying to figure out what do we do now? If we can't solve this problem in VA, what do we do? And that led me back to this idea that we had to have a public health approach to the problem of suicide. And frankly, we didn't have one. The nation didn't have one. And even though VA was working on this very hard, most medical systems don't have one. We need to involve the entire medical system of the country. But frankly, that wouldn't be enough. We need to do something that was done at the end of World War I, and that is involve veterans themselves as the drivers of these systems. 22 million veterans, even with the VA being the second largest government agency, 22 million veterans are too many for us to follow and figure out, let alone just to find them would be too much. We need the entire nation to develop a national suicide prevention strategy. And by the way, I know that one of your early guests was Barbara Van Dalen, uh, who is running the PREVENT program for the White House, DOD, and VA, and several other groups combined. I think that effort might, in time, grow into the effort we really need to solve the problem of veteran suicide. And you mentioned veterans being the solution. Being a veteran and knowing veterans, they like that idea. And helping out my brother and sister. As you mentioned, this had been addressed after World War I, and this made some changes. And could we possibly learn something from what happened 100 years ago and apply it to today? And and I'll tell you the the story because it's really important in this. So 100 years ago, uh, let's say around 1905, a book came out by a fellow named Clifford Beers. Clifford Beers was a young man who was going to make a fortune in finances, his family had been doing for some time, uh, living in New Haven, Connecticut. And he fell into a psychotic episode, uh, probably mania, where he was incredibly paranoid. He was overwhelmed by everything. And one day he jumped out of the third floor of his family home on Trumbull Street in New Haven, Connecticut. And he broke both his feet. He didn't die, but he broke his feet. He couldn't run away. So he ends up in the hospital and ends up spending two years in psychiatric hospitals. And he slowly gets better. And as he's getting better, he becomes very observant of his fellow patients and of his doctors and the orderlies and what's helping and what doesn't help. And he decides that he's discovered something important through his episode of illness, that mental illness could affect anybody, could shatter their lives, could affect any family. And yet most people, including his own family and he himself before he became ill, had no idea what mental illness was, what it looked like early signs that you could pick up on, what you could do to help a family member, nor did they realize how really awful psychiatric hospitals were at the turn of the 20th century. So he decides, I'm going to write a book. And he writes a book called A Mind That Found Itself. And in this book, he decides what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell my own story. I'm not a doctor. I won't pretend to be. Just going to say this happened to me. When he finished the manuscript, he wasn't sure that anybody would want this book. So he sent the manuscript to a fellow named William James. William James was actually a psychiatrist, but he became the father of American psychology, very important man in American thought. And James wrote back and said, don't change a word of it. This is terrific. And eventually he wrote uh, the prologue to one of the editions that came out. So Clifford Beers published this book. People all over America pick it up and start reading it. And they say, what can I do? And they start to form these local mental hygiene associations that by the time I was coming along were called the mental health associations. Now they're called Mental Health America. And it really developed because people said, I want to do something. 
The very first mental health association was in New Haven, Connecticut. So they created an agenda. And the agenda was, we're going to set up community guidance clinics for children so we can find kids who seem to be falling off the trajectory of normal mental life and help them, identify them early and help them. We're going to train teachers and faculty members and employers. We're going to get regular people in the community to come together once a month and talk about different issues in mental health. And people will not be able to fall between the cracks as easily as they used to. Now, this thing, as I said, is taking off. So you got to form a foundation, right? And William James, Clifford Beers, and the third person, Adolf Meyer. Adolf Meyer is the chairman of the first modern department of psychiatry in America at Johns Hopkins. And they needed an executive director. So they hire a guy named Thomas Salmon. Salmon had been working for the public health service on Ellis Island and found that he needed to advocate for immigrants who came to America but had mental illnesses. And he needed to find ways to identify that despite language barriers, cultural barriers. And he gets hired and he starts to run this thing. And it's just a couple of years before World War I breaks out in Europe. Salmon keeps an eye on shell shock, which becomes outside of physical wounds the greatest cause of casualties in all the warring forces, the Germans, the French, the Russians, every, the English. Shell shock is a disaster, and it's a disaster for, for maintaining the fighting force. As World War I begins to pull the U.S. in, Salmon realizes not only is this a humanitarian necessity for me to take the principles of mental hygiene, early identification, educating the common person, what to look out for, not just having great doctors, but everybody has to know what to watch out for. Catching things early and doing something about it, but not medicalizing it until you really have to. These are all ideas from mental hygiene. Let's treat these as normal human beings in very difficult situations instead of, oh, you're mentally ill, I'm dragging you off. You're mentally ill, come to the asylum. Let's do something different. Salmon convinces the Surgeon General of the Army, just as the U.S. first enters the war in April of 1917, you got to let me help set this thing up. I can do better than they've been doing in Europe up till now. And they make him the first psychiatric consultant to the U.S. Army. First time it's ever happened. He goes to France, creates base hospital, creates what are now combat stress control teams, trains the troops and, and the squad leaders and, and the senior leaders to understand this. And the U.S. does much better in, in shell shock than any of the other forces. And what he creates is combat stress control. And it's exactly what we use and is used all over the world, which is basically the PIE model. Treat early signs of breakdown in proximity. Treat them within the sound of the guns. Do not take them to the rear. Treat them in the front. Treat them with immediacy. When the thousand-yard stare begins, that's when you do something. Even before, and people aren't talking to their buddies when they won't play poker, it's time to do something and treat them with high expectancy. Frankly, it's three hots in a cot. You need sleep. Don't take them out of uniform. You're still a soldier or a Marine or a sailor. We're going to put you on different duty, but you're not coming out of uniform. You are not a patient and you are not ill. You just need a little bit of rest and a shift in duties. And the biggest problem in these wars have been that our troops refuse to leave their buddies behind because they know if they leave the, the, the front line, if they leave the forward operating base, who's got their buddies back? So we do this as much as possible now, right at the front, often in the forward operating base. So when the war ended, Salmon still had about 
2,000 neuropsychiatric casualties, as they were known, in this base hospital in France. There was no hospital system in the United States that could take these people. None were big enough, and none had the expertise in the kind of combat stress issues. So Salmon effectively advocated for the VA to be created, and it led to the largest, fastest hospital building program in, in the nation's history. They had to train up these people. But at the same time, the new veteran service organizations that formed in the wake of World War I also became part of the advocacy, the early identification strategy, strategies people learned at the front were put into action in communities all over America. And this was a public health movement. In fact, I'll go beyond that. It was a population health movement because it was something that happened within the veteran population. It was focused on a particular population that it dealt with a particular exposure. And it was incredibly effective. And it changed the way we do American medicine. Although one of the real ironies of the story is that the VA has been such a success. It's had its problems and it's going to because it has tough problems. And as I say, many veterans don't even use it. But the VA has been so effective in becoming the organization that welcomes veterans, researches their issues, develops expertise in their clinical care, develops things like the Vet Center that reach out to them in new ways that they want to be reached out to. And it's been so successful that the rest of the nation's medical system and most of its social infrastructure says, oh, the VA's got this. I don't have to worry about veterans. I don't have to ask my patients who's a veteran. I don't have to identify veterans in my workplace or their family members in my workplace. I don't have to do any of that because we got this giant VA. And that's suddenly nobody's job. The VA can't do it because they're not there. And the community's blind to it because they were counting on the VA to take care of all these problems, which is why we need to rediscover and enhance the kind of public health slash population health strategies that made us so successful in World War I. Now, that's fascinating. And hearing you talk about it, I, I can see that. This, there, and there has been a lot of veteran organizations, new age VSOs and veterans. You can't throw a rock today without somebody obviously in the veteran community talking about it. But then there's also the necessity of getting the people that are talking about it the right kind of information. I, I think that indefinitely, in as a number of the guests have recommended that you'd come on, your perspective, even the historical perspective of where we're at, again, nothing new under the sun, but maybe this time around, we might be able to, might be able to make an impact. It, it, it is an incredible story. Human nature doesn't change. People at war don't change. I, I've been lucky enough to be friends with Jonathan Schaefer like 30 years now, and his Achilles in Vietnam, if you needed proof, these war stories and the aftermath never changes. The only thing that changes is, do we allow people a form to tell their stories? Do we honor their stories when they tell them? And unfortunately, the other thing that changes is that psychiatry and mental health changes. We chase neurons now instead of listen to people. And I love neurons. I love serotonin. I, I know they're important, but you need that balance because if we're not there to listen to people and understand their problem in human terms, which is the only way they're going to talk about them, or could talk about them, or should talk about them, frankly. I don't want to, I'd never want a patient to say, my serotonin's out of whack. I worry what, sometimes that happens when I worry about that person more than I worry about most people, because they clearly don't want to talk about their problems in human terms. 
But psychiatry has to shake off some of its neurobiological ambitions and remember it deals with human beings. And that's something I've also tried very hard to uh, build back into the VA, which is hard because some of my best friends are brilliant biological psychiatrists and they probably wouldn't like to hear me say that. You're absolutely right. At the end of the day, when we are trying to address the problem of suicide, this huge problem, we're trying to keep one person alive at a time. And, and that's one person helping one person at a time. And you know, I think it's great. I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Those people are reaching out. I know from our Veterans Crisis Line, those people are the ones who call us. And most people call. They want help. They want somebody to hear them and see them. You know, it's an amazing statistic to me, especially when you try to get an appointment with a doctor. I'm a doctor. I have trouble getting an appointment with a doctor. But the vast majority of people who die by suicide have seen a doctor within 30 days. How did that happen? That's not a coincidence. I am pretty sure that most of those people who go on to die by suicide don't know that's going to happen, but they know something's profoundly wrong. And they go see their doctor who has 15 minutes with them. And by the time they get done with the usual things you do as a doctor, they've got five minutes and they really aren't able to listen to the story and tease out something's wrong. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is, but maybe we should spend more time with this. We have to find ways for those conversations. And, and if you just medicalize it, we'll keep throwing people back into this churning 15-minute thing. That's another problem. But if we were to do what the mental hygiene movement did, what the vet centers did, create centers where people can just talk in plain English about these issues and get to know each other and hang out and uh, have some donuts and coffee, and, but, and where we give normal people permission to delve into and to listen, just keep their ears open. I, I think we're going to do a lot of good. It doesn't replace what we have. And we have to build more of what we need at every end uh, of biological and psychological uh, intervention uh, in professional life. But without this other piece, we're never going to get there. No, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I really appreciate it. Dr. Cudler's discussion of the historical development of a public health approach to mental health is a valuable addition to Drs. Smith and Deutsch's historical discussion of suicide in the military in episode 39. I had the same thought, Dwayne. It's so interesting. I'm so glad we were able to include this interview, and it did remind me of the interview with Dr. Smith and Deutsch, in that Harold provided us with a sweeping, historically informed view of how care has evolved over time. I greatly want to emphasize a point that I've made before that Harold describes so beautifully in the evolution of treatment approaches on the front lines of war. Whenever possible, we should avoid taking people away from their tribe when they're struggling. Separating them from those they trust and putting them into the care of people they haven't built trust with yet sets them back from healing. The separation from others in their tribe creates a new attachment wound and induces feelings of shame and alienation. Consider this language from the Marine Rifle Squad Manual. An isolated unit is easily destroyed by the enemy. The same principle applies to any isolated individual. So often we mean well, but what we do actually plays into the enemy's hand. The voice of despair here being the enemy. A friend of mine in the Marine Corps once told me about a time on active duty when a fellow Marine was determined to be at risk for suicide. He said that this Marine was put on suicide watch with his cot moved to the center of all cots. 
separated by about 10 feet from the circle of cots surrounding him. While no doubt this instruction was well-intended, the struggling Marine was immediately separated from the tribe of his fellow Marines, which is likely to enhance feelings of shame and irrelevance. The visual of separating a person who's suffering and putting them under watchful surveillance echoes the theme of the assess and refer approach to handling suicide risk. This is perhaps the most dangerous underlying message of the mental health model of care, the implied suggestion that suicidal thinking is a private individual battle to be addressed one-on-one -on -one with a therapist. What is intended to be a warm handoff within the culture of mental health providers might actually feel like an identity-threatening cutoff to a person who already feels unworthy. We've had too many good warriors privately feel like dirtbags to continue with practices that play potentially into lethal thoughts. This is something that I've heard, and I'm certain that you've heard, catastrophically wounded or injured veterans that leave the battlefield necessarily, obviously, to get the right amount of care. We don't hear much about them. Once they leave, and, and for many of them, I've heard they would say that they didn't see their buddies for years, if ever. So they come yeah. back, they go to that rear detachment. And honestly, it's the same kind of thing. A lot of those veterans that were medevaced out of country early, and, and this is definitely a combat deployment, but I think it applies to suicide. It provides, it, like you said, it gives another attachment wound. It, it gives more challenges with that individual in their recovery because they're separated from those that they had built such a strong bond with. And absolutely, I think that applies to suicide as well. Yeah, that's the thing that they're all trying to avoid is the sense that like they can't function as a member of the tribe. And that's why the suicidal thinking can get so far down the tunnel. And so as, as Harold says, if you can catch it early, don't attach any stigma to it, just treat it early when they're surrounded by their tribe it's so much more likely to be effective and actually keep our fighting forces stronger than just pulling people out and they're never seen again and cut off from the tribe. And here's another thing. Throughout this series, I've made the point that unless you build deep trust with those you serve, you won't hear the story behind the story. I'm grateful to Harold for making the point that our frames need to be continually updated as we develop a better understanding of how trauma impacts those we serve. The classifying of people according to psychiatric symptoms can result in misunderstanding and can greatly increase stigma. Here's a specific example. If you were to stay awake for the next 64 hours, you would probably start seeing things as a result of sleep deprivation alone. Would this mean that you were psychotic or that you had a mental break? Would it be fair to say that you had developed schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder? In the same way, people who have had years of sleep deprivation and unaddressed traumas have these same symptoms. And I was curious about this. So after building trust with my patients, I asked 36 of my VA combat veterans to endorse this item on a supplemental trauma set. Seeing or hearing things others don't, such as enemy combatants that appear real, even though you know what you are seeing isn't real. I created this question because my non-psychotic patients kept telling me about hearing or seeing things that were remnants of their war experiences. For instance, many had seen flashes of enemy combatants during waking hours or felt a strong presence of an enemy combatant standing in their room at midnight. Some heard voices whispering in the language of the enemy, voices whispering in Farsi. It wasn't true psychosis, though, because they were consistently aware that these odd perceptual experiences weren't actually happening in real life. So in this sample of 36 combat veterans, half of them, 18 of the 36, reported having these kinds of striking perceptual experiences. 
And it's not true psychosis. It's the product, I believe, of years of disrupted sleep and unaddressed trauma that these patients have not been able to process psychologically. These symptoms created two kinds of fear for patients. First, the fear that these experiences meant they had lost their mind. Second, there was also great fear among them that these experiences would compel providers to slap a diagnosis on them if they reported it. Since I knew I wouldn't do this to them, they acknowledged these experiences, and because of their courage, I'm now able to say with confidence that these kinds of odd perceptual experiences are actually quite common for those with trauma exposure and moral injury, and that they're not a sign that you've lost your mind and that treatment can successfully address them. We have not, we collectively, I think the mental health community or the medical community at large have only really, I think, begun to tap into what is possible, what our brains can possibly do. It puts me in mind of people are very familiar with cue-based memories around the holidays. Sounds and sights and smells can make them remember and even feel like literally feel like they're back in their childhood. And they don't call that psychosis. They call that, of course, a, a cue-based memory. This is a, There's a certain kind of low-temperature post-rain weather pattern that reminds me of Fort Benning and Airborne School 25 years ago now. So yeah. it's one of these things that people readily accept that. But if I'm walking across the street in downtown Colorado Springs and there happens to be a generator that's spewing out some exhaust and there's a certain weather pattern and all of a sudden I'm not flashback like I'm back in the jungle, but I have this double vision where I'm back in Kabul because smog was a huge issue. And so in one mind, I'm in Afghanistan and another mind, I know that I'm walking across the street yeah. and it's this doubling of vision. And early yeah. on in my clinical training, my clinical director explained that there is a measure of psychosis related to PTSD, but that doesn't mean the individual is psychotic. And that I think plays into the larger conversation of not pathologizing what can be normal experiences. And then going back to your first point, separating that individual to such an extent to make them feel like they're a an other. Yeah, that their experience is odd or unique to them or implies that they've have some broken process in their brain. In fact, psychosis, as we both know, means loss of touch with reality. And I think actually it's not psychosis. I think it is very close to what you just described. It's a really good way to put it. It's like a double exposure where my patients were aware that this was not actually happening, but they saw it and they heard it with their perceptual senses. And so I don't think it's psychosis. I think it's a common experience with people who have had unaddressed uh, trauma and moral injury. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that, again, a lot of this conversation in both of those points, one of them from the fact that community and the individual's tribe really has a role to play, but also we in the medical community, the mental health community have a role to play. And so I definitely appreciate this being part of the conversation. So thanks to everybody for taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at bettermentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS46, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show notes on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group. 
You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 chatting online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. Make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest episodes. Join us next time for another great conversation. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.